Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, one of the most prominent Yes campaigners speaks out after a week of silence. It was heart-wrenching and since, you know, I've just had this uh, aching emptiness in my chest is the way I describe it. That's Thomas Mayo. He was one of the Indigenous leaders who helped write a public letter that came out this week that does not hold back in expressing their disappointment about the no result in the referendum. It's two and a half pages long and it says that voting no was a shameful act and that it was appalling and mean-spirited. And it squares much of the blame at two specific individuals. It also talks about setting up a voice anyway without the support of a referendum or the parliament. I'll talk about all of that with Thomas Mayo in our briefing. First, here are today's big headlines. G'day, it's Antoinette Latouf on Wednesday the 25th of October. One of the two elderly Israeli women who were taken into Gaza as hostages and have now been released has spoken about her ordeal, saying she went through hell. 85-year-old Yuki Vidlashid says she was beaten with a stick when they abducted her on October 7, but she says they were well looked after following the initial shock, and this is her daughter translating. She's telling us about sharing food with the people that when she first arrived, they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them, and that they shared, they ate the same food that the Hamas was eating. More than 200 other hostages were also taken to Gaza, including her husband. Four hostages, two Americans and two Israelis, have been freed so far, and it comes as US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken continues to call for all hostages to be freed. Yeah, well, there's been continued speculation in media reporting that another 50 hostages may be released soon. Uh, These are clearly very complex negotiations. Uh, It's all happening as Israel continued blocking fuel um, into Gaza, but also holding off their ground offensive. So it's going to be very very interesting and must be very stressful to see what's going to happen in the next few days. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I just can't imagine her family's relief as she walked out and I was looking at that footage and obviously an elderly and frail woman and quite beautifully, she shook her captor's hand and said salam, um, which is peace, which I thought was just, you know, such a, such a wonderful exchange given her what, what must have been just an absolutely mm. harrowing and awful ordeal. I do wonder why we're not talking about a ceasefire when why leaders aren't urging for an end to to the to the violence like the death toll is 5000 half of them are children in Gaza as you mentioned petrol has been cut off as has water and food um, i know freeing hostages is important but ending collective punishment is too and i just wonder like what next? How many more people have to die before leaders start calling for an end to this violence? Yeah, well, the UN chief is calling for a, a ceasefire, um, but yeah, it doesn't seem to be happening. Um, clearly, Israel want to completely dismantle Hamas in Gaza Strip. And another life has been lost as bushfires continue to burn across the East Coast. So Queensland police are investigating after a body was found in the Western Downs where two emergency bushfires are currently burning, along with a third in the Toowoomba region. So pretty concerning in that part of the world. Um, Yesterday, several uh, towns, including Tara and Kogan in that area, were told to evacuate. And the death there uh, comes after... Another death, a 56-year-old man 
passed away protecting his mother's property on the mid-north coast of New South Wales a bit over a week ago. Yeah, this is so tragic, especially this early in the bushfire season. And while fire is a regular part of the Aussie landscape in spring, um, we have been warned to expect much drier and warmer conditions than normal this spring. Um, and so Aussies are urged to be alert and prepared. And, you know, some are even suggesting that this is going to be the most significant bushfire season since Black Summer. That was in 2019-2020. And what's different this time is that areas that previously were untouched, Tom, so that includes um, Sydney Basin, Central Regions and the and the Hunter are at increased risk. Um, and so people are being told just because your area hasn't been impacted before, don't be complacent. A French museum has had to fix the skin colour of a waxwork of Dwayne the Rock Johnson after he complained about it. The Grevin Museum in Paris revealed the figure earlier this month and got hit with a wave of criticism. The main issue was the model's skin tone and fans accused the creator of whitewashing the star who has dual heritage, Samoan and black. And after the Rock joined in on the criticism, he called on the museum to update the model with some important details, starting with my skin colour. The museum says staff have worked overnight to remedy the skin tone of the wax figure. Wow, what a very awkward situation. When I heard that he complained um, about the wax work of himself, I was like, oh, is it because it's just like not ripped or not muscly enough? Because as you know, <laughs> he's absolutely huge. But when I went and had a look... It looks like the model is like seriously anemic. It looks like an Irish version of the rock. I'm just not sure how they got that one wrong. During the Great Famine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that was it. And the world's oldest dog, Bobby, has died at 31 years old. That's incredible. So it's a Guinness World Record. The dog spent his life in a small Portuguese village, um, 150 k's north of Lisbon, Bobby was a purebred Rafero de Adelento, uh, which is a breed of livestock guardian dog. It normally lives to 12 to 14 years, but Bobby, um, yeah, stuck it out for 31. Oh, good on Bobby. That is that is so impressive. And you know what? I reckon it's because Bobby had a Mediterranean diet. You know what they, you know what they say about the Mediterranean diet being the most healthy? So I suspect there was no kibble for Bobby. He had seafood and legumes and organic produce. Um, but you know, gosh, I have a, I have a dog who I'm completely obsessed with and I'm constantly, constantly worrying about him aging and leaving me. Um, so 31 years, that is a good innings. But interestingly, Tom, the title for the oldest dog had previously been held by an Australian cattle dog called Bluey. So Bluey was born in 1910 and lived to be 29 years and five months old. So that's also oh, wow. a very impressive wicket. Mm. Go Bluey, go Bobby, um, go all the other dogs that are living past 12 years old, and I hope your yours does too, Antoinette. <laughs> Catch you later, Antoinette. I'm about to speak to Thomas Mayo. Thomas Mayo is a Kuareg Aboriginal and a Kalkalgal, Yurumbul, Torres Strait Islander man. Uh, he was a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and one of the most prominent Yes campaigners. Thomas, thanks for joining us here on The Briefing. Thanks, Tom. You gave The Voice campaign everything you had. So how did it feel to see the result? Uh, it was um, it was heart-wrenching. Uh, and since, you know, I've just, uh, just had this uh, aching emptiness in my chest is the way I describe mm. it. It's, um, it. It really is... Um, 
hard hard to see, you know, that it was such a repudiation of the the generous invitation to accept us in our constitution, a people with a history on this continent of over 60,000 years, you know, having done a, a lot of work, uh, not just myself, but many to to make a proposal that would see us close the gap, you know, just the, the simple method of listening to people before you make a decision and advisory committee. To, so to see that just uh, rejected was, was really hard. Mm. And in recent days, we've seen the letter that's been put together and written by a group of Yes campaigners. Were you one of them? Did you have a hand in this letter? Yeah, I was one of the people that worked on it. There was uh, quite a few involved. It's a collective sort of effort, you know, not signed by anyone, but just generally expressing how Indigenous people feel in this historical moment where we've, um, you know, rejected such a, an invitation. So uh, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain, but I think importantly at the same time we're looking forward. Uh, we're, you know, appreciative of everybody that voted yes, five and a half million Australians, you know, that in itself, while it wasn't enough to change our constitution, it was um, a considerable act of solidarity. Over 70,000 volunteers by the time we uh, were in the final day. And so um, that is something also where we have great appreciation for people taking action and we need to continue to walk forward. We've been uh, uh, dismissed uh, many times before throughout the history of colonisation and we have dusted ourselves off and in a inclusive way, you know, in a in a way that uh, tries to bring others along with us, we, we just continue to march forward towards justice and that's what we're going to do. The letter didn't hold back, it seemed, in really expressing the pain and the hurt from the result and also from the campaign itself. It seemed like during the campaign, you were careful not to use words like racism, but it it was used several times in this letter. There was also a quote that this was an appalling and mean-spirited decision by people to vote no and would remain appalling and unbelievable for decades to come. Um, you called uh, voting no a shameful act. What was the thinking going into being a lot more open about the depth of the pain and, and I guess almost sounds like anger at the no campaign? Well, it's great disappointment. And I think if we look at you know, what other uh, what commentators from other countries are saying, you know, this is a decision that is embarrassing. Other, other like nations have done constitutional recognition of Indigenous peoples long ago. Other like nations have bodies for the representation of Indigenous people and the matters that affect them that haven't been taken away every time they've been legislated that um, ensures there's a consistency of the ability for Indigenous people to speak to their, uh, their issues and, um, and their inherent rights also, you know, recognised in a greater way than we have. So we know that young people overwhelmingly voted yes. I don't think that um, people that voted no are, are racist. I think that there was an unprecedented disinformation campaign that we saw in this country. And I'm not saying that people are silly, but I do know that people have many other priorities in their life, which is one of the reasons why we wanted a voice, because we are, you know, our issues, even though we're so far behind the rest of the country in life expectancy and uh, and other measures, our incarceration rates and suicide rates are hugely disproportionate. We just aren't thought about when people elect politicians and decide who has power in parliament. So we needed the voice and... I think that it's something that our our children will do one day. 
it's okay for us to say that we got it wrong. Okay, so you talk about a future voice in the letter. You say, we want to talk to our people about establishing, independent of the constitution or of legislation, a voice to take up the cause of justice for our people. So what could you see working there? A, a voice that is completely independent? How, how would it work? Do you think it could actually um, have some political weight, even though it wouldn't be legislated or in the constitution? Yeah, I don't think that's for me to decide. Indigenous people uh, are working on on what's next. You know, uh, our our leaders are talking all the time since we lost the opportunity to have it constitutionally enshrined. I think uh, most Indigenous leaders agree that it is still important to establish some sort of representation on the matters that are common across our communities. That logic, that common Mm. sense doesn't change. It doesn't change that we need representation to get better outcomes. The idea of constitutional recognition was to recognise us in a way that we proposed, but to ensure that there was that underpinning in our constitution, that it's a standard that we should listen. Now, that has been lost. Mm. It doesn't mean we don't need to establish a voice. Hopefully, going through this, governments that come along and and would seek to silence our, our voices again, uh, whatever we establish in the in the near future hopefully they'll think twice hopefully that expression of solidarity from almost six million australians uh, will make them think twice uh, politically as well and i really hope that everybody that did support this and no voters that learned that they might have voted no um, because they were told lies by leaders in the no campaign uh, like Peter Dutton saying that this was re-racializing Australia when this had nothing to do with race. Um, this had nothing to do with division. It was about inclusion. Um, I hope that they, uh, Australians in increasing numbers, uh, will say that it is important to listen to Indigenous people. It's important to respect our ability to have political representation and that they act so that we can close the gap. I mean, that was the ultimate goal of the referendum, is to set us on the course in a much more efficient manner that would get us to that goal quicker, to see no gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, the same opportunities for our children as all Australian children. If you had your time again, what would you do differently in the Yes Camp? There's things that I would do differently. There is, you know, I, I, I would never say that the No campaign was flawless and uh, none of the fault uh, of loss was ours, but I would never regret trying to achieve this. Indigenous people overwhelmingly voted yes. You know, in Manangrida, it was 80%, 88% yes. In the Tiwi Islands, it was 84% yes. In Mornington Island, it was 79% yes. You know, and on it goes across the entire country for, um, you know, predominantly Indigenous uh, ballot boxes, it was overwhelmingly yes. I think we'll do this one day. That's an interesting point. Was one of the lines from the No campaign was that the statement that around 80% of Indigenous people supported the yes vote, they basically threw a lot of doubt over that statement. But as you say, a lot of those remote communities very much voted in favour of the voice and some of them were very much around the 80% mark. Was that one of the most frustrating arguments from the No camp, given the way those votes landed in, in remote Indigenous communities? Yeah, it was one of the frustrating things. You know, the No campaign didn't talk about the actual alteration. They talked about anything else to confuse Australians. Uh, There were many lies told, many contradictions. Unfortunately, 
it was hard to get that through to the Australian people. And the Yes campaign tried really hard, but we struggled to get decent airtime, even decent headlines. You know, uh, the good stories had negative headlines. You know, the sensationalism for, you know, the clicks and, and all that were just, um, you know, just, just really damaging. Uh, the dishonesty, uh, the lies in social media, unfettered, um, also did massive damage. Those are things that I think uh, I hope that uh, the nation's leaders look at. Um, obviously, those that use those tactics in this campaign and who intend to use it at the next election undoubtedly will try and defend against any uh, integrity in advertising and in social media. But I think it's a serious question for our democracy because it cannot continue to be undermined as it was for this, what should have been a no-brainer, simply recognition and listening to a people that the government makes decisions about all the time. And will the Uluru statement from the heart be rewritten or changed? Look, it's uh, it stands as it is, you know. It's still a generous invitation. It still states the truth of who we were before colonisation, who we are now the torment of our powerlessness that we're not heard. I hope that one day what it seeks to achieve, which is, you know, Australian people walking together, uh, a country that doesn't have the gap anymore, that, you know, celebrates its culture in a genuine and meaningful way, uh, which is over 60,000 years old, that, that is where we want to get to. So the Uluru Statement still stands. Every word of it, including the First Nations voice enshrined in the, in the Constitution? Well, as the statement said, that might not be possible in our lifetimes now. Uh, That opportunity was wasted and I really hope that people think deeply about that when they think about who they're going to elect um, at elections, Um, really take notice of those that had uh, courage and vision, like the Prime Minister, to put this to the Australian people, to follow through with his election commitment, uh, which was not his idea. It was an idea from the Uluru Statement. It was an idea from Indigenous people, and I was one that campaigned for him to do that. But I also hope they look at who uh, was dishonest with comments like re-racialising, you know, letting the trolls that constantly and intensely attacked any Indigenous leader that spoke up for this. Um, I hope that they uh, see the repercussions in our democracy when people consider what they've done. Thomas, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Thank you, Tom. Listener.